Hi, Nikki J here, and you're listening to Wild Hearts Club. Thanks for listening. I created this podcast to encourage vulnerability, conscious conversation and aligned action. I really believe that these three ingredients are key to living a fulfilling and meaningful life. I'm so happy to share with you my conversation with Bram Levinson. Bram serves as a yoga and meditation teacher a coach and mentor. He's the acclaimed author of The Examined Life and A Year in the Light. We we get deep into fear. And after working in the news industry for almost a decade, I am acutely aware of the moral panic that ensues in response to sensationalized reporting. And while a threat of contracting COVID-19 certainly exists... To put it into perspective, more people die of cancer and mosquito-borne diseases each day. And we don't see this blasted across the news in red text. So that is to say, let's collectively aim to keep our fears in check and focus on getting our facts straight. So Bram's take on not only coronavirus, but life Um, is rooted in wisdom and expressed with a humorous cynicism, which I very much enjoy. And in light of, you know, all of this toilet paper and hand sanitizer hoarding that's taking place right now, I kind of hope that today's episode can lift the mood a little bit, maybe crack a little smile on your face. Um, We certainly talk about some serious topics, but it's done with some lightheartedness, so... I hope you enjoy. Just a heads up, I do want to apologize in advance. During our conversation, I'm a very hand gestury kind of person, so I bumped the mic a couple of times, so you might hear that pop. Without further ado, here is my chat with Bram Levinson. Well, Bram, I'm so excited that you're doing this with me. Thank you. My pleasure, really. Um, for those who are uninitiated, would you mind introducing yourself? So, my name is Bram Levinson, and the labels that usually get affixed to me are yoga teacher and meditation teacher. <clears throat> I like to I like to think of myself as uh, I like to I I believe that I'm here to accompany other people, especially through their rougher moments. So that's sort of like the umbrella purpose, if you will. And then the ways I get that accomplished include teaching yoga and teaching meditation and mentoring and coaching and writing books and doing a podcast and giving workshops and giving uh, yoga and meditation trips around the world and other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of it eludes me. But it's sort of... um, it sounds like it's a lot, but it doesn't feel like a lot. It feels like it's all a very natural extension of, of me and what I want to do and I guess what I want my life to uh, represent. Yeah. So, so yeah. So uh, it started out a decade, over a decade ago, just having an itch to... Well, I had started practicing yoga in 1999 and then I was at the end of a career 
in retail management for a large American retailer. And I was very afraid of just giving it up because I had never gone to university and pursued a degree. I never got a degree. I never finished anything in university because every time I started, uh, I quickly would drop out. The second I saw that it wasn't going to bring me anywhere that I thought was going to be helpful, I would drop out. Mm. And I've always really felt like uh, time was not just precious, but like I was aware that it was a non-renewable resource. And so if I was going to spend my time doing something that I knew wasn't going to amount to anything, that to me was you are wasting your time, you are wasting your life. So I would very quickly leave and then seek Mm -hmm. and see what else I could do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I was at the end of a career and because I had nothing to fall back on, there was fear as to if I leave this career, what am I going to do and how am I going to pay my mortgage and how am I going to exist in the world and how am I going to contribute to the world as a responsible person would, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, And uh, at that point, I had become friends with uh, a girl who owned a studio, a yoga studio in old Montreal. And we were out for dinner and she just said to me, she knew that I was sort of going through this mini crisis and she just said to me, look, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I would teach yoga and I would write and I would be a photographer. I would take photos. And she just looked at me and she sort of shrugged like, okay, so why don't you? Mm. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Why don't I? Yeah. And, and I think actually, I think at that point I had quit. I think I had quit my job, but I was just nervous about what was coming. Uh, so, and that, and that's what I did. I just started shopping around for yoga teacher trainings, uh, started blindly applying to online magazine editors to get a job. And I eventually did took a photography course, did that. So I was sort of doing them all simultaneously. And, and when I saw the yoga and the, um, well, the yoga exploded sort of exponentially on its own. I mean, I showed up, obviously I worked, but that obviously had something waiting for it that I was unaware of. The writing, I was just writing for this online magazine, but I was also writing my blog. I'd started my blog, which became the skeleton for my first book. And the photography was great and it was fun, um, but it ended up falling to the wayside as I started to focus on the other two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I do-ish. I love that. I feel like that's your essence really made manifest in all of these beautiful creations, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Well, listen, I mean, when, when I'm coaching people who are staring into the unknown and there is a lot of fear, first of all, I want them to know, I, I know exactly what that's like. Exactly. But I also want to convey to them something that is, you know, there's no empirical evidence to back up what happens when you take a leap honorably and with a good work ethic. Mm. There is no empirical evidence that I'm aware of, but in my experience and in the experience of most of the people who I have led in that direction, um, there are so many things that start to unfold and happen and come to meet you Mm. as you make your way down this, you know, this path that you believe is not illuminated, that's dark and sort of cluttered and you're not sure where you're going. But there are a lot of things that just happen and people start to pop up out of the woodwork and, and the way I like to explain it now is life happens. There's a whole other branch to life that is waiting to happen. If we were just bold enough to take the leap, Mm -hmm. not caring whether or not there was a safety net, 
or rather understanding that there's always a safety net. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't necessarily look the way you think it does. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. not the safety net we've been told we need. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really important with what you've just pointed out that there's, at least in my opinion, I think there's a difference between pursuing something that's coming from an ego-based or fear-based desire. I must pursue this job or this degree to your point um, versus I have this itch. What would you do if, you know, money didn't matter or um, status didn't matter? What would you do if you could do anything? Oh, I would write or I would pursue this other calling and then following that with, with a true intention. I think that's when I suppose life comes to really meet you in the middle there and it really signals, I think that you're on the right path, at least for yourself. It can be very validating. Well, when my friend asked me that question, actually what you just asked were sort of her words. She said, if money wasn't an issue and if geography wasn't an issue and if education wasn't an issue, what would you do? Mm. And that's when I was, well, I would write and I would teach yoga Mm. and I would be a photographer. And she she sort of hunched her shoulders like, then what's stopping you? Yeah. You're able, you have freedom, you know, and, uh, and, and I remember thinking, oh shit, <laughs> in my mind, I remember really thinking she just eradicated like any story that I may have been in the process of creating to justify not doing that. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because I, when I quit my job, I quit it thinking this is an opportunity for me to, oh yeah, I, I just re- remember that it was an opportunity for me to make my it, what I then thought was simply going to be my professional life, not realizing it was going to be very interwoven with my life mm-hmm. because my, the work I do now is sort of my life's mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember thinking if I could make my professional life as satisfying as my personal life, then why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. And that's why I took the leap. Do you think there is actually a distinction between our professional lives and our personal lives? Or do you think that's a human construct that the system has created for us to almost create a sense of separation within our own experience. Yes. Uh, Yes. What you just said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What you just said. I think that we're taught. I don't know if we're necessarily taught. I don't think it's spoken in such languaging, but we are conditioned to believe that what we do for our livelihoods is a responsibility that we have to carry out if we're going to be good, contributing, responsible members of society. And I don't think that we're ever really taught to really pursue your passion and know that if you work hard enough and you don't give up and you're clever with it, it can end up not only being your livelihood, but far surpassing what you need in Mm -hmm. terms of income, you know, um, I've said it many times before, but I believe that the traditional educational system is extremely, extremely archaic. And I think it sets people up to fail miserably in life. I think that you can, first of all, the fact that kids who are 15, 16 are being asked to decide what they want to do with the rest of their life is, I don't just think it's irresponsible. I think it's bordering on abusive Mm. um, because I think that is psychological warfare. I think that that's putting someone who should not be in a position to make a decision that they feel they can't get out of, even though they can, but they're not told you can change your mind. You know, they're told make a decision and then decide what the trajectory is going to be based on that decision. So decide what you want to study. Now choose where you want to go to school. See if you get in, see if you can afford it, Mm -hmm. do all those things, hopefully. And all of a sudden you're just in this 
you're in the current, right? And the current takes you to the next step and everyone around you is doing the next step. So you don't, I, I don't think many people consider, oh, I don't have to take that next step. Yeah. Um, and then they go and find a job and then they get a job and they work their ass off and they try and sell themselves and make sure that they're appreciate, not, not that they're appreciated rather, but they make sure that the company values them enough to keep them. It's this, it's such a, like a one way abusive relationship mm. in my, in my view, because at no point are we told choose the companies that you think would be a good fit for what you want and yes. for your life. You know, we're told like sell yourself and make sure you shut up and, 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 and do whatever you need to do to uh, make it work. Shape shift into whatever role yes. you need to play in order to get the promotion or the stat, the title, yes. the salary and whatever aspect of you that doesn't fit that suppress it. Yes. And that's what leads to professional burnout. The majority of people who I have seen, um, in a, in a coaching capacity or context, uh, the root cause of their exhaustion is having to perform at a level that is not natural because they can't bring their sense of humor into it. They can't bring their, um, their joie de vivre into it. It's very sort of like, okay, this is who I have to be. And this is how I have to be. Mm. And at a certain point, once the initial thrill of, oh, this is working, they like me once that wears off then dissatisfaction starts to sort of fester. And if you can't bring comfort into it, you know, there's a, a core yoga teaching that says that every pose that we take in the yoga practice and the yoga asana practice needs to be the perfect combination of comfort and stability. And while it refers back to the actual physical practice, I believe it's also metaphorical for life. I think that we need to bring, we need to have in as equal measures as possible, comfort and stability. And what would that look like in a human context? Well, in a human context, it means that if you're in a relationship, uh, that relationship is like, let's say you're, you live with your partner, you're able to manage the business of your life. So you pay your bills and everything stays above, like your head is above water, that kind of thing. Um, but you also can have a laugh with this person and relax with this person and be you with this person to an extent that you didn't think was possible with someone else. Mm. So there is a structure aspect where you do have to get shit done, but there's also a comfort aspect where you, there, there's no doing to be had. You can just be, and that works and it's just easy. Mm. And I think that we need to be conditioned to, or rather we need to be encouraged to understand that that should be, exist in, at work. I think that with the millennial generation, I think that that's becoming more of a thing. Uh, I don't think that there's as, there are as many decisions being made out of necessity. Mm. I think that there's a lot of choice. And while that's a great thing, the shadow side of that is entitlement, where mm -hmm. people think that they can have whatever they want, mm -hmm. whenever they want, and that they don't have to earn their way up, the, let's say the pay scale or pay ladder, whatever the hell it's called. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a multidimensional thing, but ultimately I think that everything we do, there needs to be a certain amount of structure. There needs to be a certain amount of comfort every day for me, every day needs to be, I need to be able to identify what I did in that day that was, that contributed to the structure. And I need to be able to identify what I did during that day that was completely devoid of structure. That was completely, I winged it. I had fun. I was comfortable. I totally relaxed. Mm. So for me, it needs to be that pairing because w without that, there's no balance. And I think that right now the world is sort of out of balance. Yeah. I feel like the way you're describing that, it's almost as if that's, um, a cue to know what our natural state mm. should be, mm -hmm. what we're really 
working to create within ourselves and our life and um it's interesting to just to go back to your comment about um millennials having this freedom in this generation and then the shadow side of that being entitlement as a millennial I certainly understand what you're talking about there but what's really interesting is that we're navigating um life in a way that has never been like it hasn't happened like this before well it I think I think it has happened but it's happened on such a micro level because I consider myself to have been to have had the millennial approach before it was status quo Mm -hmm. that that was my path my path was I said no to shit right left and center that it wasn't a good fit and I got a lot of shit for it I got into a lot of trouble my parents worried my family worried How's he going to end up? Is he going to survive? Is he going to fall through the cracks? Because society isn't set, wasn't set mm-hmm. up to uh, support that kind of free thinking. And I think that's um, that individual pursuit occurs across generations. We've yes. had people throughout history who have pursued, I mean, the Shakespeare's of the world, the Oscar Wilde's of the world. I mean, you know, the Martin Luther King's, you name it. Mm. Um, but contextually speaking it's interesting i mean my uh at least in my experience my my parents uh were the baby boomer generation and so for them um even though my parents didn't go to university but university was actually free in australia at the time like you could get an education for free Mm. it's very common for people to own their own houses property was really cheap and now we're living in this world where i think sometimes for millennials the pressure of owning your own house or having this is almost impressed onto you by that generation that's above you. But in fact, we live in a world now where that's maybe more inaccessible to us, but it also begs the question, does it matter? Well, I can listen as somebody I'm, I'm Gen X. I own my property. It's the second property I've owned. And I can tell you that there are pros and cons to renting and there are pros and cons to owning. Mm. Neither of which in my experience, now that I've done both, I don't think, I think the only reason to own is for me is because I have never been one to, uh, like let's, if I got a paycheck, if I got paid with something, I'm, I've never been that person who took half of that and put it in a bank account ever, ever. That doesn't, I know and I've had financial people telling me that's what you should be doing and that's never going to fucking happen ever. So, <laughs> so for me, owning property is squirreling away that money on a mortgage mm-hmm. that I would be squirreling away mm-hmm. on a rent knowing that one day I'll see it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hopefully yes if the economy doesn't <laughs> doesn't somehow implode on into its own non-existent self anyway yes. um I but think yeah statistically I mean, speaking like property is always a worthwhile I think so. investment yes I yes. think so yes. um but I had this conversation with my partner years ago saying if we moved from the place that we're in uh, we would probably just rent. Mm. We'd probably keep this place that we own and rent it out mm-hmm. and then rent somewhere else. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the trade-off of dealing with taxes and repairs, and if you live in a building, it's not just your repairs, you're dealing with communal repairs, mm. versus dealing with the landlord. I mean, if you're lucky, you get a good landlord. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I don't think... Th- if there are any millennials listening to this, it's not all cracked up to be what they say it is. And I think important to remember that your 
worth and value and like success in life is not attached yes. to whether you own a property yes. whether you see other millennials buying properties or whether you feel that pressure from your parents whereby it was maybe a lot easier in their generation to acquire property that we do live in a little bit of a different world and it's okay not to be a homeowner yes mm. it's it, it, it's actually very okay not to be a homeowner um I think that I think the dilemma exists for people who want families. I think for people who want families, they want to be able to have space for those families and have their kids grow up in a stable environment. And we've been conditioned to believe that for you to own your property, it sort of equates to stability. Uh, And on the one hand, I can see why, because you can never be evicted, Mm -hmm. right, from a property that you quote unquote own. But even that, I mean, in my first book, In the Examined Life, I talked about the concept of ownership versus management, Mm -hmm. you know. I don't think we own anything. Mm. No one's here permanently, you know, and ownership is such, it has such sort of like a permanent connotation to it. Um, I think we manage it. We manage our relationships and I manage this place that I own, Mm -hmm. you know, the percentage of which is not yet or or not still owed to the bank on the mortgage, the outstanding mortgage. Um, but even when that mortgage is paid, am I going to own it? I mean, no. The, and I think the example I used in the book was, you know, if we were at war, if Canada was at war with another country and we were being invaded and somebody showed up at my door with a gun to my head saying, we live here now. Yeah. Bye. You fucking live here now. I just took the hell off. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's all a human construct. Every, all of it, it's all constructed by humans for humans to keep us in, I think this game. I love that you use that example. It reminds me of, um, I worked as a, a video journalist in Cambodia for a little bit and uh, I remember covering a story where this entire community was evicted and they owned their little homes that they had created as small and and humble as they were Um, but these huge Chinese corporates came in and wanted to fill this lake that the houses were spotted around with sand to build all of these giant I guess, condo type structures and they just evicted them because it's such a corrupt country. It's a poor country. They were able to do so. And these families were just completely uprooted Mm. and no one gave a shit. Mm -hmm. Like this is an aspect of the reality that we live in. Absolutely. I mean, listen, if the banking systems fail, there was a great series on in England in 2019 called years and years. Brilliant. Took place, I think four or five years in the future. And then spanned, I want to say, the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this, I mean, it wasn't, so, I want to say it was this dystopian future, but it wasn't really. It was like a not so far off future mm. um, where banks failed. And let's say the banks did fail. You know, the banks basically count on a healthy economy. Mm-hmm. The economy is not healthy because those three white men in the ivory tower have decided it's not healthy. Um well, in theory, I have this mortgage agreement with a bank. Mm-hmm. If the bank fails, I, do I still have a mortgage agreement? Mm-hmm. Do I still own? Am I, do I need to like barricade my windows and go Lord of the Flies on this shit? Like what, who's to say? The financial crisis. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, how many keys were left indoors of properties in exactly. Detroit? Yes. And the yeah. fact of the matter is I play this game reluctantly. I play this game with a healthy degree of cynicism and I think a healthy degree of what I would believe is wisdom Mm. so that I can hope for the best but expect the worst. 
Well, we have, um, we have, I guess, cryptocurrencies on the rise mm. nowadays too. So it's going to be interesting how that plays into... That shit scares me. I think it's so interesting. Oh, I think it's interesting too, but it scares the hell out of me oh, because it, to me, that is the economy. It's, it's, it's intangible. I love it. It's decentralized. It means that we don't have these powers that be yes. controlling. Yes. Mm, I know. I should do my homework about that. I mean, it would be nice to know myself to be, I'm like a billionaire in like monopoly money. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, have you ever seen um, or read The Ascent of Money by no. Neil Ferguson? He's mm -hmm. a documentarian and historian and he... Um, talks about the history of money and how it's shifted and how we've changed the perception of it within this human construct. And it, um, the word bank, I believe, came from um, Venice where the Jews would trade um, the Catholics or Christians because they weren't allowed to lend to each other money with interest on top over the banky. And that's where the word bank came from. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And so, and this is where in um, Shakespeare, Shylock, I think, in The Merchant of Venice, mm -hmm. was like, I'm going to take a pound of flesh. And so this notion oh. of loan sharks came from that whole story. That's so cool. But he speak, he goes up until, I think, the financial crisis in 2007, whereby initially it was like this trade of, I guess, something chiseled on a stone or whatever, here, this is like the honor of the agreement, mm, mm. Um, which shifted into physical money and and whatnot, coins, notes, and now it's just a number on a screen, and it's this piece of plastic that we tap, or it's not a or piece your of phone. plastic, it's our phone, it's yeah. a watch, yeah. and we just trust, yes. in inverted commas, yes. that that money is ours, that the interest we're earning is ours, and yes. as you said, you know, I don't necessarily trust um, this system mm -mm. to be investing my retirement funds or whatnot into. Yeah. And you can see throughout history how volatile this system has yes. been. Yes. And maybe it's because I like to expect, well, I don't like to expect the worst, but I think it would be irresponsible to not, mm. to not at least be aware, mm. um, of the risk, which doesn't mean that I let the risk necessarily motivate me. I'm not, I, I don't have very much of a relationship to fear anymore at all. Um, but I like to know, I mean, I've had financial advisors in the past where I've, you know, I've basically told them this money that I'm putting, let's say into a retirement plan or this fund or whatever, I know that I'll never see it again. Yeah. And the response has always been, it's almost like I insulted their mother. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, like they, they've taken it personally and like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, I'm ne I know I'm never going to see this again. I think their identity is so Well, yeah, and but like of course that's advice. what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, listen, I can, I know what you're doing and I can see what you're doing. That's okay. Um, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm putting this in because it's a, da a tax deduction for now. Mm. If that money is there later, whenever that is, I will be absolutely mind blown. Overjoyed. Yeah. How great. Yeah. I think that's such a great segue into um, talking a little bit about fear because I mm. feel like it's, it's one of these words, but it really is imbued with so much power. It motivates society to do all sorts of absurd things, including getting really you know, frustrated and fixated on making all the money so that they can retire and finally live their life and... And then dropping dead. And at then 40. dropping dead, and you can't take it all with you anyway when you're gone. So, mm -hmm. um, 
and of course at the moment as as you've spoken about in a number of your classes recently we've been discussing um, the reaction to coronavirus and different things in the world terrorism whatever else is happening I would love you to shed your perspective on this sure um why do we do it why why do we buy into fear why are we yes why do we buy into fear Let's so as there. a kid i was in the 70s and the early 80s i was a gay kid who didn't see myself reflected back at me that's the story that's the life script i always say it's the it's the same languaging um because i think it's a very succinct way of saying it not because i'm not mindful of how i'm saying it um and i spent the first 13 maybe 14 years of my life well let's say from being like conscious and aware so let's say from i mean how, how old are we really aware of shit i don't know 2 3 7 yeah. i have no fucking idea <laughs> anyway i for the first let's say 14 years 13 14 years of my life i i was uh i was i was fear i was the embodiment of fear because i felt like i couldn't I felt like I was carrying a secret around with me and if I told that secret my world was going to shatter. What made you think that you were carrying a secret in the first place? Because I didn't see the attraction that I had for this people of the same sex. I didn't say see, see that reflected back at me. And if I did later on and well, let's say when in like 7 8 9 10 when I'm watching TV sitcoms at that period of time or or period in time uh some of them some of the sitcoms would have a gay character but that gay character was always the joke mm. that that person was always the joke so i started to understand that i was the joke mm. so i was afraid of being the joke i was afraid of people knowing my truth i was afraid of that truth cuz i didn't ask for it mm-hmm. it just was and anybody who thinks that you choose that shit needs to be hit over the head with a fucking truth hammer sorry i know that's not very yogic or compassionate but they can fuck right off cuz i'm done with it you don't choose it or at least in my experience it was not it was it was an imposition it was a heavy one and it was one that had me mature beyond my years i think that a certain aspect i had a very 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 uh, fortunate childhood privileged childhood i had a roof over my head i never questioned where food was coming from i had a fantastic education um but i suffered a lot it was a very very difficult childhood in my mind and so there was a lot of fear And I remember getting to a point, I don't know, I guess I was 13 or 14. I was in high school. And uh, I just thought that's it, I'm done. And it didn't mean that I was coming out of the closet per se, but I decided I have spent all this time not doing what I wanted to do. I'm now doing only what I want to do. While still playing the game. So I still went to school, but I would like write myself notes from my mother. <laughs> um and then leave and go downtown and go watch movies. Yeah. I would skip I skipped gym for 3 or 4 years. I and think I, we would have been good friends had we gone to school at the same time. I know. Part of me thinks that if we had been in the same geographic location, I would have bumped into you at some of those films. Um I skipped gym for 3 or 4 years. I got like eight like 80s, 90s. I don't know how that happens, but I don't remember being there. <laughs> I would go to the library. I would go to the library and read. Um I just did what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. and i realized very quickly doing that i started to gravitate towards people not in my school i went to a very very strict private boys school which is now coed but it was boys school back then um 
and it was very Dead Poets Society. If you've ever seen that movie, that was my school. It was very, very, very British, and it was very stern, and it was very, you know, oak paneling and really, really um, bordering on unpleasant teachers, like hard, unpleasant teachers. Um, and at that point, I had decided... That, I didn't decide it in languaging that specific, but I just thought, okay, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. So nothing scared me. So if a teacher I thought was acting like an asshole, I, I was the one calling him on it in class, going, you're being an asshole. Um, and getting into shit for it. I would ditch school. I would go do whatever I wanted to do. And I started to gravitate towards people who knew what suffering was. Mm. People who I had met through... Either, either, you know, in the summers I would work at camps, at day camps. So I met people there. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know how you make friends. You just end up making friends sometimes. You just cross paths with someone and something in them resonates with you and vice versa. And uh, I started, I, I wasn't hanging out with the bad crowd, but I'm certain that I was in part hanging out with people who my parents thought might have been the bad crowd. Children of alcoholics, prostitutes, um, people who people who had not been as privileged as I had mm -hmm. and weren't given as many chances as I w was given and ended up in situations that, and I don't mean specific situations, but life situations where um, there was struggle. And I trusted that. I trusted that more than the sons of the politicians who I went to school with and the kids who, whose family had like Porsches and Lamborghinis and whatever. I, that shit annoyed me to no end because I could very easily see that those things weren't real. They were illusions of safety or illusions of identity or illusions of worth. But to me, what was of worth was being free. And I started to exercise my freedom in, I'm not afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. So to make a very long story short, I ended up working in retail management because a friend of mine owned a shop. And then from that shop, I was headhunted by a big American company and I worked for them for years and they were amazing, really amazing and, and, and made money and bought my first apartment and, um, and whatever. And then when I made the transition from working to what the hell am I going to do now? It was really the first time since I had been an adolescent that I was faced with fear. And again, I was like, I, I remember saying to myself, there is no plan B. What triggered that transition? I was sick of selling shit to people who didn't need it. Okay. Really? That was it. Um, and the company had hot, big hopes for me. They wanted to bring me to the States and they wanted me to move up the ladder and I had absolutely no interest. I stayed in that job. It wasn't a job that I respected. It wasn't a career I respected. And consequently, because it was a career that I didn't respect, the money that I earned from it, I didn't respect. So I was very sort of, um, I guess, irresponsible with money. I wasn't, I, 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 it had no value. And the way I've always seen it in retrospect is if the way that you earn it holds no, if you don't respect the way you earn it, money holds no value. Mm. And so I would just buy shit. I would just spend, I would just buy whatever. And, and I, in hindsight, that's because I, you know, I wanted to feel good, mm -hmm. you know, retail therapy is a thing. So when I made the, when I decided to make the switch from that career into doing what has sort of ballooned into what I do now, um, it was, again, it was, it had been a long time, but it was, oh, fear. There's fear again. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. And there is no plan B and it will not fail. 
I remember saying that to myself, it will not fail. Not I will not fail, it will not fail. And I then had a little bit of like a disclaimer moment where I said to myself, if in five years I'm struggling to make ends meet, I'll have another conversation with myself. Let's go. And I mean, it's hard to explain what happened, but things just grew and grew and grew and grew. And just on that point, if yeah. you don't mind me intercepting, sure. what role do you think setting such an intention has in actually creating that self-fulfilling prophecy? A massive one. Yeah. Because number one, I, was at, I, I wanted to teach yoga because yoga meant so much to me. Because I had been practicing at that point for nine years and it had changed my life and how I felt. And we only know something as being true for the most part when we feel it. Mm. Um, but the fact that I also said there is no plan B, that was essential for me. Because if I knew that there was something else I could do, I might have given up sooner. Um, but I didn't. And I worked my ass off. I worked. I have worked, I still work way harder than I ever did doing a, an 11 hour day mm. in a store. Um, you know, I remember when I worked in retail, we would do overnight sometimes to like flip the store, to redo the whole entire store. We would work overnight and that is nothing compared to what I do now. But the difference is there's so much joy associated to what I do now. Mm. And it's not, it's not, how can I put this? It's not just... Um, a series of tasks that need to be completed it's creation I really see what I do as creation um, and it's it's very much the artist's way because it's a lot of it starts as inspiration and then it's execution it's make, making manifest something that was nothing it was just mm -hmm. a thought that did not exist outside of my brain or this brain um, so coming back to your question when I took that leap and again it, it sort of grew into this thing that I could never have dreamed was possible. Um, again it reinforced to me that the best thing that we can do with fear is not fear it, but recognize it and in the presence of it move in the opposite direction of where it would motivate us to go. It can be a really beautiful signal then. Yes. And it is, if we understand it, because we've been conditioned to believe that fear is like a eh, 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 like do not pass, do not go here, as opposed to no, this is the way. You know, if you're afraid of it, chances are there's some grace there. Um, and, and I'm not talking about like, let me jump off a building and see if I can fly because, you know, like keep your fucking feet on the ground. <laughs> Um, but I'm saying that because I'm, I'm only saying that because people do call me a yoga teacher and I really, I have an issue with that term because there's so many stupid things happening in the yoga industry right now. And I know that there are, I'm sure there are countless yoga teachers who would object to me saying that and who would think that I'm not legit if I'm not talking about unicorns and fucking fifth chakra. I don't care. Mm. I don't care. There's a lot of stupid shit going on in yoga and there are a lot of people who are being given the name of yoga teacher who are not qualified to do it because as far as I'm concerned, the base foundation of being a teacher is you are there for other people. It's not about you. Well, it's unfortunate because I think the industry, like so many oh, others, absolutely. is just a commoditized, yes. sexy, yes. trendy thing to do. Yes. People just get their trainings like it's... Yes, like it, like it's, you know, you know, I don't know, <laughs> buying an airline ticket and then waiting nine months before you can go on the trip. Exactly. You know. Um, 
but yeah, I don't want to sound like it's all unicorns and lollipops because it's not. And I think that maybe that's what's resonated in my career with people is that the cynicism is still there and the skepticism is still there. I want something proven to me to know that it actually works. And those are the things that I talk about and those are the, the things that I teach. I'm not going to teach... There's so much theoretical stuff and there's so much um, ethereal stuff, ephemeral things that are discussed in yoga and in spirituality and in meditation. And until I know that they're real through experience and there's evidence for me, then they're not real. Mm. And, and you I can't get that unless you're willing no. to play the game and exactly. show up. Exactly. So you do have to play the game. So I have, I have shown up. I've shown up reluctantly. Mm. <laughs> not, not because there was fear, but because there was um, aversion, which to me are two different things. Um, I have, a, I have a, what I used to refer to as the finely tuned bullshit meter, but I, I have a very low tolerance for inauthenticity. And so if I ever found myself in the presence of a teacher who was talking bullshit, I would leave. I would leave the class um, because it's my time. It's this time, you know, I've only got so much of it. Um, <clears throat> so again, to circle back to your question, the moment that we find ourselves in now globally, I think is the product of decades and decades and decades and decades of being told or being conditioned to, excuse me, believe that it is normal to live with an undercurrent, a low level undercurrent of fear because our society and our cultures are sort of, they teeter on the edge of fear and stability. The economy is fragile. Um, so is life. And so is life. And so is life. Um, in the Upanishads and in, um, the end part of the Vedas, which are Hinduism's oldest scriptures, there is, I'm paraphrasing, there is a, a, a verse that refers to where there is another, there is fear, which basically speaks to our fear of each other. If the other is not a mirror image of, of us, then we fear what we don't know. Mm. Um, but we've been conditioned to believe that we are to be feared, right? One to the other. We've been conditioned to believe that uh, our safety and stability lies in the hands of someone else. We rely on our banks. We rely on our governments. We rely on our employers. We rely on our parents. We rely, we rely. And nowhere are we taught like you are responsible for your own existence. Mm. Um, there's just, there's, there's fear sort of insidiously integrated everywhere. And we have been led to believe that that's normal to the point where we have trouble defining where that fear actually lies because we haven't even identified it as fear, but it is. It's in a lot of the aspects of, of how we live. And so if you consider that people who are already under tension have a greater tendency to snap when put under more tension, we are, we're already under tension. And that really started, I wanna say in 2000, well, after the, after the financial crisis of like, let's say 2007, 2008, um, what we typically see with financial crises is that when the economy crashes, uh, politics go very, very, very much to the right, very much to the right. And it starts to pop up in art and music and that sort of community within a decade of it happening. 
then it starts to become a bit more apparent to everybody afterwards. And then like within a generation, it goes that the pendulum probably will, and hopefully sooner, but the pendulum swings the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, when the financial or after the financial crisis happened, what started happening was uh, there was this very slow creeping wave of intolerance that started to build specifically in Europe. And it was an intolerance that was aimed towards basically minorities or what we're led to believe are minorities, which I think that if they banded together would be the fucking majority. But uh, women, LGBTQ, and all the other letters that come with it, um, uh, communities, people of color, and by that I mean not my pasty, pinkish, translucent, cast with a ghost color. Um, <laughs> But ultimately, people started to get targeted for being different. And that stems from our money was being put into social programs so that everybody's rights were protected. Now we're being told that there isn't enough to go around. So who's the first people who who are the first people who are going to suffer? The people who are on the fringe, the outsiders. So let's demonize them so that we can justify reallocating that money back to us because there's not enough to go around. And I frankly, I think there's always enough to go around mm. if we stop believing in like the Wizard of Oz. Mm. You know what I mean? But and that one percent needing their like fifty houses and twenty cars. Well, and... I mean, you know, I think that I think that that's pathology. I think there's something psycho like psychologically happening with those people. But anyway, mm. um, and listen, I can't know until I get there what that's like. Um, but I think that it probably triggers something in the brain where you lose sense sense of unity, sense of something. I'm not, I'm not really quite sure, but whatever. Um, so this wave of intolerance started to build and we have been riding it for the past seven years, seven, eight years we've been riding it. It moved into the States in a big, 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 big way. Um, and they went from the country that I think the world looked to as an example to the country that the world looked to and thought, wow, anything can happen. And guess who's not the center of the world anymore? And then a couple of months ago, this coronavirus thing happened. And so everybody's already living in, uh, and plus in this low level of, of tension, this low level of intolerance and fear, uh, what also ended up happening was while things were going very, very much to the right politically, a lot of things were going very to the left, very far to the left, where with the sort of evolution of social media, everybody had a voice. And because everybody had a voice, which is a great thing, Mm. everybody also was given a platform to um, object. And while objection and free speech is essential, it can be taken to sort of an unhealthy place. And I think that we've now gotten to a place where everybody, well, not I shouldn't say everybody, but there's a huge percentage of of the world's population that is waiting. They're like holding their breath for someone to fuck up so that they can then pounce on them and tear them down and set them on fire and stamp on the ashes and declare victory. I think there is a whole generation of people right now, multi-generational, but I'd like to say it's very generational. It's a, it's a lot of people, I want to say my age and younger, um, who are desperate to be offended. That's the term I always use. They're, they're waiting to be offended and they're waiting to be able to destroy someone else with As that. As a justification for their low level suffering, do you think? Maybe. Or low level fear? Maybe. Maybe. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so when you then introduce into that the coronavirus, mm. all of a sudden, everybody who is already dealing with a certain amount of tension, now that tension just got compounded exponentially. And people can't take it. And what happens when the fear gets to be too much or the tension gets to be too much is it either comes out as erratic behavior or it stays in the body as dis-ease. And it stays in the body if you're not doing anything to shift it, like talk, therapy kind of thing, or moving the body, going to the gym, climbing, yoga, whatever, cycling, whatever. Um, meditation, faith, something. Um, something that helps you shift the tension because ultimately these bodies of ours are just receivers for, for sensations. And so if the balance of the sensations are negative or if, or if the majority of the sensations are negative, then we're under more tension. And if there's nothing to balance it out, well then what's the point in doing this life thing? Mm. If it's going to be that miserable, why would one do it? Truly. Um, so I can't help but feel that I mean, and we were just talking about this before, but of course there is a realistic threat that is uh -huh. attached to coronavirus. For sure. However, the way it is received in sort of the collective, I can't help but feel the way the media and government exactly. injects um, and presents it in such a way that I think it becomes a distraction. Yes. It becomes a distraction from living our own life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's sensationalized. You know, I, I noticed earlier, I went onto Twitter to look at um, what the UK's situation was with coronavirus. And the, it wasn't just a headline. It was like the, 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 the opening paragraph, which was the headline in bold on a red background. And I thought, I mean, I'm not, it's a good thing I'm not colorblind, but I mean. What a great manipulation tactic. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Um, yes, of course, the coronavirus is something to be aware of. But the fact that it has motivated people to go out and stock up on enough toilet paper to last them through until 2021 is bonkers. Bonkers. When you actually consider that the majority of third world nations use water in a hand if they have water. Mm -hmm. They don't need the paper. Mm -hmm. Just saying. You know, like, really. Um, when you consider that these people ran out to get masks and then we're told, but that's actually probably going to make the chances of you transmitting or, or catching the virus even greater because you shouldn't be bringing your hands to your face. Mm. You know, um, it's like logic went out the window when fear is present. Logic goes out the window mm -hmm. and that's because we have an emotional side of the brain and we have a reasoning side of the brain. And when fear hits, we go, we fall into the emotional and the emotional is not based in, 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 organization and it's not based in logic it's based in someone else's rhetoric and it's based in um flight right it's not as fight. You said with that low level tension if if we're not processing the happenings of life it's going to come out sideways yes. and we're going to say stupid things to people yes. and we're going to act like dickheads. Well, that's it. I mean, the xenophobia is already at a level that I'm, that I'm not comfortable with, but mm -hmm. that, that started seven, eight, nine years ago, or at least, at least the vocalization 
of that xenophobia. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there were a lot of people who kept it on like the DL a little bit. Um, but then all of a sudden, when world leaders who are essentially bullies and, and, and idiots were elected to power, it gave these people or the false sense of, of, of power so that they could then vocalize their xenophobia, you know. Um, but yeah, it's happening. It's happening in every one of our cities where if you speak to the Asian populations, you know, they're being asked why they're not wearing masks mm. they're, or they're being asked why they are wearing masks. And something that I found fascinating through actually doing the research is that in China, at least when you see them wearing the masks, it's not necessarily only a way to prevent themselves from transmitting um, the virus. It is a sign of solidarity. Mm. And I love that. I love that it's a it's cultural kind of sign of solidarity. We are all in this together. We all wear the masks together, even yes. if I'm not affected by it physically. I am with you, that kind of thing. I think that's amazing. And it just goes to show the ignorance that exists on, well, in every other part of the world where people think that that's just a sign of them being sick. Yes. You know, it's not that. So all that to say that, yes, we're in this moment of fear. And yes, partially it is justified because there is something that has been dropped into our collective experience uh, that that could quote unquote kill us. When, in fact, every single one of us that gets up out of bed every day or doesn't Mm. runs the risk of something killing us. Do you know what I mean? This just has a name and it's being reported on all the time. And I I guess the thing that really fascinates me about it is that there there are so many people who are so afraid of even catching it, not realizing that if you get it, the majority of the people who get it their symptoms are minimal mm-hmm. and they recover, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and as I recorded in the podcast last night, and as I was speaking in classes over the past couple of weeks, I don't, I don't want to play that game. I've done my time in fear. I don't want to be in fear. I don't want fear to motivate me into doing anything or being anything other than who I am and how I am and what I want. So, as I said in the podcast last night, I would rather die of coronavirus than die of stupidity, Mm. you know, Um, because I think there are a lot of people out there right now, as I speak, as we speak, who are dying of stupidity. And to your point with that, and you're someone who has continued to remind me of this um, as, as a mentor, but it all exists at once. So I, I think this becomes a beautiful opportunity to reframe it and, really knowing that death is a possible outcome why not fucking live because mm-hmm. the two they well because it's a shadow side of each other or or, or the the flip side mm-hmm. of each other mm-hmm. the buddhist practice every morning of waking up and asking is this the day where the body is or when the body is going to go and then basing the decisions you make about that day on that mm. that's living yes when you know how to die you know how to live yes and as, as we said before we started recording, I, I've been saying for a long time, for five, six, seven years, that we're living in a dark age. That when history looks back on, let's say, the past decade, they will see it as a dark age. And that dark ages are always followed by ages of enlightenment, but that it's going to take something that will scare us. Mm-hmm. As a global community, something is going to scare us, like a world, typically these are world wars or, or pandemics. Um, to wake us up, to wake us up to how good we've had it up to now. Mm-hmm. I mean, my generation and younger, 
we haven't dealt with war. Mm. We haven't dealt with illness. We have been able to pursue happiness, Mm -hmm. you know, and to have conversations and to write books and to sit and watch TV TV if we want. These are things that don't exist. You know, later in the year, I'm going to do this show, a a theater show in Montreal, and I'm reading my great-grandmother's, or I've read my great-grandmother's 100-page autobiography where she moved from Manchester in England to Montreal at the turn of the 20th century. And I mean, it's a sad sad, hard, difficult, poverty-stricken, illness, disease-riddled story. And when I read that, I think, my God, how lucky am I? And I mean, I really mean that because I, I, I know that there are theories about reincarnation. I don't fucking know. All I know is that how lucky am I to have been born into this part of history where I haven't had to second-guess much. Mm-hmm. I may have had my issues as a kid and my battle with fear, Um, but ultimately that's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's nothing compared to what they dealt with when life was different, you know, technology was different. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that this coronavirus, while it is instigating massive fear and it's being used as this manipulation technique to keep people in fear and controllable because fear divides and conquers. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think that it's, it's an amazing thing. I think it's an essential thing. I think it's, it's here to wake us up. It's here to wake us up. It is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what God you pray to, and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your skin color is, and it doesn't matter whatever money or means or abundance you have. No one is immune to it, mm-hmm. at least that I'm aware of anyway. Um, it, and, and, and the fear is sort of across the board. And what, um, what actionable steps can people take in their own lives to overcome that sense of fear? Well, for starters, like research whatever you need to know so that you have actual cold, hard scientific evidence so you understand what you're dealing with. Because if you listen to the so-called president of the United States and base your opinions on that, then you're misinformed. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think most world leaders right now are misinformed unless they are backed up by science. Um, And listen, I'm somebody who believes in a lot of things that we, that science can't pin down. Um, But I think when it comes to like this kind of thing, infectious diseases and immunology and all that stuff, I think we need, we need to refer back to Mm. the scientists. So to know the facts, to know that, you know, it would be wise for you to not touch your face with your hands, but that's ever, Mm. you know, if you don't want to catch stuff, Mm. don't bring your fingers or your face, your, your, your hands to your face. Um, If you are somebody who sneezes in public, which most people do at one point or another in their life, consider that you're not alone and cover your fucking face. Now, I know that I sound kind of judgmental about this, but I was on flights a couple months ago and there were people next to me who it wasn't even that they weren't covering their faces. It was like they were trying to direct it. It was like they were sneezing in specific directions. And part of me just thought, are you raised by wolves? Were you raised by wolves? Because I need to fucking know that if I, need, if I can stay in the seat for another nine hours, I need to know. Um, and that's another thing. Maybe this is going to wake people up to the fact that like, oh, I should actually own the fact that I'm like basically just sp- spraying my body fluids all over the inside <laughs> of, of this cabin. <laughs> um, what a visual. <laughs> well, it's, the, the struggle is real. Um, so I think, I think people, number one, should look at what the facts are. Mm. Um, they should also be very, very present to when fear is present. Mm. And to me, that is perspective. 
That to me is yoga and it's meditation and it's all of it. It's Hinduism, it's presence. Presence for me is being able to observe the thoughts and the situation that one is presented with and finds him or herself in before actually reacting or, or acting or behaving within the context of that situation. It's understanding there is fear. What do I feel right now? And how do I think I might act if I allow that feeling to um, sort of to shift itself? Because that, I think, is what's responsible for a lot of like the shitty things that people are saying and doing to each other. And I think this pertains not only to this coronavirus mm. situation, Mm-mm. but of course... No, general life. degrees of happiness. People who are unhappy in their own life have to shift that. And typically, they shift it onto other people. Yeah. And that expression, we always hurt the ones we love, we're shifting that onto the people we love the most. Yeah. Yeah. So I think pay attention to the evidence. Um, be smart with how you interact with people. Mm. Um, But stay in evidence, stay in facts. Because the fear that you could catch coronavirus by walking by an Asian person is unfair to not only that Asian person, but to you. Because you are then limiting how you live. And my thing with this whole thing is if you replace the word coronavirus with terrorism, relationship, relationship, financial issues, self-esteem, anything that elicits fear within any one of us because it will change person to person. Yes, exactly. Um, To me, it's the same thing. It's all interchangeable. I'm not going to change my life. I'm not going to change what I want to do and how I want to do it Mm. because there is the potential for a terrorist attack to happen. Or there is the potential that I might catch coronavirus. Mm -hmm. The the more we stay in the what if, the more we are in anxiety. Mm. Anxiety is focused, for the large part, is focusing on what is not. And to circle back to what we were saying earlier, the more you don't get the evidence you require to prove that you experimenting with your own life experience is giving you the data you need to know that something works. I think it keeps you in that middle ground. How do you know if... I mean, yeah, how do you know that you're not going to succeed or that you'll fail unless you try and do it? Well, exactly. Years ago, I did a course on Islam. Um, And I did it because I was so tired of having whatever knowledge I had of Islam and Muslims being from, like, American news channels. So I did this course on Islam, and it completely blew my mind open. Mm. And I thought, okay, now I know better. I don't know, but I know better. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, the responsibility every single one of us has, yeah. is to know better. You will never know everything, but we can do the work that we need to do on an individual level so that our opinions are not based in someone else's fear or rhetoric, mm-hmm. but based in our own direct experience yeah. of something. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Give life a crack. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Like live uh, this. And I've said it so many times in classes, but like, enjoy your fucking life. Yes. Enjoy your life. That's a decision. That's a decision. And right now everything is set up for us to not enjoy our lives. Mm. We are set up to fear, fear your life, fear what could happen, fear the potential. And you know, I'm sorry, but I reject that. I refuse to, to fear and I refuse to, to, um, 
stop what I'm doing for fear that I might contract a virus in the process of doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, with that said, as I said earlier, before we started recording, I'm not, I'm not going to fly to Northern Italy right now because mm-hmm. that's on lockdown and that's for a reason. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, and again, it, it doesn't need to be that extreme. You can take precautions and still make decisions yes. that are not rooted in fear. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So I, I just, you know, I, I just want people to understand that we are not necessarily designed to live in the presence of fear the way we are right now. Mm. Um, and when we talk about people dropping dead of 40, that's a real thing. Mm. Like this is, I'm hearing about this from the people around me that their bosses or coworkers. Because of the anxiety and fear that they live in. And because of the um, work ethic that they've been led to believe they need. Oh yes. In order to be able to properly provide for their families and for themselves and to be responsible and to put money away for that day. And to play the when role they can in retire. that story that they tell themselves. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And, you know, I would say to people, live every single day as if you had just retired. Mm-hmm. Because retirement is for people who don't like what they do. Mm-hmm. So I understand that like people have responsibilities. They want their kids to be okay. They want to put money away, whatever. Um, enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. No one else can do that for you. Yeah. And certainly no one's going to design your life so that you can do it. No. You've got to do that. You've got to step up and make your own decisions and organize your life in a way that pleases you and that has as much as possible equal um, helpings of comfort and stability. Mm-hmm. So there is structure. We need structure, but we need that structure in order to know how to break away and when to break away from it. Yeah. You know, so learn the rules, learn the game, understand it, and then break away from it. I think that's really how I've lived my entire life. Mm. Yeah. Um, my last question to you, Bram, and I ask everybody this at the end of the podcast, but being called Wild Hearts Club, I'm curious as to what it means to you to embody a wild heart. To be free. To me, it's to be free. Mm. It's to be uh, as not disconnected from, but unattached to fear as possible. Is it that Rod Stewart song? Wild Hearts Run Free Tonight? Is that is that a lyric? Mm-hmm. I feel well, like that's a lyric. I think of the Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. When I hear that. Is that a re- but is that the lyric? I think it might be the lyric. Wild Hearts Run Free Is tonight. it Young Hearts? Oh, it is Young Hearts. Damn it. That's all right. That's, yeah, Let's well done. Let's just do a new rendition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, to me, a, a wild heart is, is well, I just rewrote the lyric. So fuck you, Rod Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's to run free. The cover's available on YouTube, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear me sing. Um... But yeah, no, I think that that's it. I think that a wild heart is a free heart. And a free heart is not weighed down by the fear of what if or what should be, but is very much connected to what is and and what can be. Mm, I love that so much. Where can people connect with you? I know you have a show coming up later in the year and you have all the things. So All the things. Um, You can go to bramlevinson.com. And most of those things will be there. Um, the show is at the Rialto Theater in Montreal, in Montreal's Mile End District, on Wednesday, October 14th at 7.30 p.m. It's called Bram Levinson Storyteller. Um, and, you know, classes at Luna Yoga in Old Montreal, books here and there, and shit. 
Yeah. Do a Google search. <laughs> yeah, do a Google search. When people ask me, some people, sometimes they'll ask me if I have a business card and I just say, you just Google me. Yes. You know, not flippantly, but because like, who's carrying a card? Yes. Not me. Yes. Maybe, actually, maybe some listeners are, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> Extra paper. Extra, exactly. Extra weight. Yes, I'm being environmental. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs> Bram, this was... So wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely your my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the for, for the opportunity. I love um, doing it. So good. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of Bram's musings, you can check out his podcast, The Examined Life. And if you have any thoughts or comments on today's episode, I would love to hear from you. You can connect with me on Instagram at wildheartsclub.podcast. In the meantime, stay healthy and keep those hands clean. (laughs) And we'll see you next time.